Welcome to Informed Aging, a podcast about health, health, and hard decisions for older adults. I'm Robin Roundtree. I spent six years as a family caregiver and now work in the senior care industry. With me is my co-host, Edith Gendron. She's the Chief of Operations for the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, a positive approach to care certified trainer and consultant, and a former family caregiver with over 20 years of experience in the industry. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong to us, not our wonderful employers and sponsors. If you want to get mad, get mad at us and not at them. Before making any significant changes in you or your person's life, please consult your own experts. Today, we are very happy to be talking with Dr. Rosemary Laird. She's a board-certified geriatrician, specializes in helping patients with memory loss, Alzheimer's disease, and dementia disorders. Got her medical degree with honors from Georgetown University School of Medicine. Very nice. And uh, she actually is a sought-after speaker and co-wrote a book, Take Your Oxygen First, Preserving Your Health and Happiness While Caring for a Loved One with Alzheimer's Disease. I could go on and on, but we're going to take a break and just talk to the woman herself. We'll be right back. Senior Helpers is the only home care agency offering a revolutionary new way to approach senior care. The Life Profile Assessment. This data-based app is a crucial tool in helping seniors age safely and successfully at home. Combined with our proven in-home care programs and trained caregivers, Senior Helpers Life Profile is leading the way to better outcomes for our clients. For more information, log on to SeniorHelpers.com. For over 37 years, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, ADRC, has served as a Central Florida-based grassroots nonprofit and community resource center. They are dedicated to providing support and hope for families and individuals caring for someone they love who is living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementia-related illnesses. ADRC empowers caregivers with the knowledge, support, skills, and strategies they need to help them confidently prepare for the challenges that lie ahead. To learn more, visit the website adrccares.org. And we're back talking with Dr. Rosemary Laird. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Robin. Thanks for asking me to be here. Hi, Edith. Hi. <laughs> so a geriatrician, for those who don't know, give me a, an easy answer. What is that kind of doctor? Sure. So a geriatrician is a physician who has specialized training in the older adult. Typically, we use the 65. Don't anyone get upset with me, but we use the <laughs> 65 years old as our cutoff, sometimes because it matches to insurance, Medicare, mm -hmm. of course, as we all know. But typically, those doctors have come out of medical school and taken training in either family medicine or internal medicine, and then done either one, two, or sometimes three years in a fellowship focusing on geriatrics and all the things that happen to the aging body. Wow, so that's a lot of extra education. It's not just a seminar you sit through, it's, it's years of work. <laughs> exactly. I think there is a misconception that older adults are just like younger adults and that if you know how to take care of a 40-year-old, you can apply it to 60, 70, and 80-year-olds. And with all due respect to all the physicians in the world, uh, who know a lot, 
there really just are some unique things that happen to our bodies as we get older. There's a unique combination of things that happen. And everyone is so different as we age that geriatricians get trained to understand the realities of aging and to look for those unique aspects of how someone has aged and then think through what those implications are for how they live their life. So our health becomes more intertwined with our day-to-day life as we get older. And that's something also, when you're taking care of younger people, it tends to be more focused on the issue at hand of that illness. It doesn't often have repercussions or downstream effects into the rest of their lives. When we become older and have health situations, symptoms or illnesses, conditions that require treatments, that sort of thing, it's more involving our whole lives. And, and that's where geriatrics really, I think, has its, its core uh, value within the healthcare system. Now, Robin, you mentioned that not many people know <laughs> about geriatricians, and there's a very good reason for that. There are very few of us. Oh, no. In, in fact, I'm sorry to say that there are fewer now than when I started, oh. which is the wrong way for things yes. to have developed over the course of, uh, dare I say it, 25, 30 years since I finished medical school. There's a lot of reasons for that, but in any event, we can talk about you know when to seek out those geriatricians because fortunately there are some in the area and in certain areas, uh, they can add a a lot of expertise. Okay. So not everybody needs one because not everybody can get one because there aren't enough. I was thinking, I guess, to clarify what you were saying, an example would be if a 35-year-old comes in with some dizziness, you're going to treat the dizziness. But if a 75-year-old comes in with dizziness, then we've got fall prevention to worry about and a whole bunch of other things, frailties. So I can see how You've got to think about what they're doing with their life. Are they on stairs? You know, that sort of thing. If they're walking five miles a day, we don't want them to do that with dizziness. So is that kind of a good example? Yes. And, and I'll, I'll add some complexity to that, though. So your 35-year-old with dizziness, the list of what's likely to be responsible for their dizziness has maybe three, four, five items on it. Okay. They probably aren't on a lot of medications. And they're likely to have something that will be quickly resolved, and they'll be back to their pre-dizziness level of function and ability. Contrast that with a 75-year-old with dizziness. They're likely to have many other medical problems. If they're like the average 75-year-old in the U.S., they will be on at least five prescription medications, at least about three of which can cause dizziness or contribute to dizziness. They're at more risk, you already mentioned, for complications from the dizziness. Your 35-year-old will kind of catch themselves if they start to fall. Your 75-year-old will fall and break a hip because of dizziness. Consequently, the 75-year-old's episode of dizziness is less likely to resolve quickly and to leave that individual at their pre-dizzy level of functioning and ability. Older adults tend to become cumulatively more frail when illness strikes. And their ability to recover and be at the level they were before they were sick decreases as we get older. So one of my sort of 
pleas to people when I'm in clinic is to pay more attention to your symptoms, get help more quickly, you know, bring it up that you're having a symptom, don't brush it off. Mm. When we're younger, we've got a little more reserve to be able to brush it off and not have any ill effects. For an older body, there isn't as much reserve. There, There just isn't as much sort of flexibility of our organs, if you will, so that you will end up in some situations with more damage that'll be accumulating, and that's where we get this cascade of frailty that we we don't want until really, really late in the game, right? Right, right. With regard to part of what you just said when you referred to the five medications, when we do some workshops at ADRC, we mention the beers list, and we suggest to families that they ask about that. Is that a valid thing to keep doing or? Oh, absolutely, the beers. Well, disclaimer, I'm an author on the beers criteria. As a community-based geriatrician, I was uh, asked to be one of the geriatricians who helps think through how the beers criteria get put into practice. And what is this? So the beers criteria, thanks, Robin, Mm -hmm. the beers criteria are a set of guidelines, really, to help practicing physicians, and in cases of a layperson looking at the list, to help all of us understand the medicines that have high potential to cause older bodies problems. (laughs) They are all found to be effective at doing something therapeutically. Mm -hmm. So we know they're good medicines, per se, at doing their job. The difficulty is they may bring significant side effects or other problems along with it when an older person takes that medication. So just like we were talking, the complexity of geriatrics is that even if a medicine can cure a problem, as a geriatrician and really anyone prescribing to older adults, you now need to realize you have to think both of what is the benefit of this medicine, but also what is the harm. And what the beers criteria does is it challenges all of us when we are prescribing certain medications and certainly any that appear on the beers criteria list, that's our trigger to say, okay, hold on. I know I need this medicine, but let me double check and make sure there aren't special precautions I need to take, or I need to think about a lower dose, or I need to caution the family or I need to use something else. Mm. And so it's really meant to be kind of a stopgap where you take a look, if it's on this list, you think through, is this really the right answer for this individual person? It's a, it's a very valid uh, point for a family member to bring up, for example. But I do want to caution that I, even I, have prescribed medicines that appear on this criteria list. And the reason is, is in some situations, the answer to the question of it's providing benefit and it's causing risk, but overwhelmingly the benefit outweighs the potential risk. And so sometimes you make that decision. I always say, The beers criteria is most helpful because it helps us think more carefully about our prescribing practices. And so for a layperson to ask a a prescriber a question, 
I see this on this list. What does that mean for my loved one? I think that's a really informed and excellent layperson you know, activity. That's a way to advocate for your loved one that would be excellent. You have to be careful how you bring information <laughs> yes. up to professionals. Uh, as long as it's done respectfully, most of the time it goes just fine. Um, I think having it written down or having a screenshot or a, a copy of the criteria that you're looking at, uh, anytime you reference something for a professional, having what you are referring to is a big help to them. It gives us a context to understand right. where the caregiver's comment is coming from, and that's very helpful. So is it beers? What's... It's, uh, it's a name. Okay. There was a geriatrician. Yay, geriatricians. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's passed. Mm. But before he passed, his name was Beers. And so it's the beer, it, Beers list, Beers criteria. And before he passed, it was his work to start looking at this type of question as far as prescribing and how we can make informed decisions about prescribing medications for older adults. All right. We will have a link to that in the show notes. So um, every older person listening or their caregiver can print that out and keep that with them. That is great information. And is it fair, and I mean that sincerely, to say all of us, regardless of our level of interaction with someone who is 65 or older, need to hone to learn excellent listening skills and truly listen, not so much to the stories, although that is my job and I'm happy to do it, but when you're in the physician's office to at least give them credit for knowing their own bodies. Does that make sense? I love that, Edith. I really do. The last comment you made, give them credit for knowing their own body. In medical school, they're doing a much better job nowadays of helping medical students understand that listening is probably one of the most important clinical skills there is. And it unfortunately has not been the case that doctors are very good at that. You've probably all heard something like the statistic that the typical time before a physician interrupts a patient in an exam room is somewhere between 7 and 11 seconds. Whoa. <laughs> There's not a lot of <laughs> even talking that can go on, let alone listening at, at that pace. So, yes, there needs to be listening. One of the most important things I think I've learned from my whole career is that especially the younger you are as a clinical person, when you're speaking with someone who is older, you really have to suspend the belief that you know how they're feeling or you know what they should think about this or you know really anything about how they should be experiencing this particular moment in their life. And I don't mean that just to be silly about, oh, you can't know what this person's back pain feels like. What I mean by that is when you haven't lived 57 or 77 or 87 years, you simply do not know what it is to be 87. And there's a lot that goes into being 87 
that my patients over the years have explained to me <laughs> about how you feel about your self, how you feel about mortality, how you feel about losing many friends and loved ones at that time that shapes your frame of reference. And no matter how empathetic we are, it is difficult to know precisely that, how it is to be 87 and to know different parts of your body are failing, for example, all at the same time, right. and to live it every day. So I think one of the things most damaging to a, a clinical patient relationship with older adults is the dismissal of how that individual is really feeling and being affected by this illness and not listening to what they know of their body and what they know of what they want fixed, for example. Mm. You know, we sometimes offer tests or therapies that are worse than the symptom. Oh. And you'll have some patients say, heck, if I have to do those three tests, I'd rather just give me something to deal with this knee pain. And whereas we would all say, no, go get your knee fixed. That's a, probably one of the m more clear examples. Uh, but in any event, I, I think it's really important not to presuppose that we know how an older adult is feeling about their health condition. We really owe it to them to ask and see what they value in life and, and where it is they want to go with their condition and how it gets managed. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm sure everyone listening is going, well, I want her as my doctor, <laughs> Dr. Laird. Tell us, are you accepting patients? Well, Robin, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, very, very much uh, part of my uh, DNA, I think, is, is having patients and, and family caregivers. So my clinical work over the last 25, 30 years has been as a specialty geriatrician. So we talked earlier about geriatricians, um, maybe more in the primary care role who might handle all of someone's medical needs. My work has uh, for many years focused on the area of memory loss disorders and working with two of the state of Florida's memory disorder clinics. And I've absolutely loved that work. And that's an example, I'll just say as an aside, that's an example of people who need help with problems about memory loss I want to just put a, a point out there that the type of, of, of physician or specialist who can help those individuals, there's a few different types, and uh, geriatricians are among them. We tend to think of neurologists first, mm -hmm. uh, and then psychiatrists can actually help in some cases, as can neuropsychologists. So I just want to put out there that there are a range of people uh, who can help. It's challenging because amongst geriatricians who do it, there's only a few of us who do the specialty work in memory. But that's the same in neurology. So if you call a neurology office, it's very important, just like if you call a geriatrician or a psychiatry office, to ask if they do have a specialized focus in memory loss disorders. But there are some out there um, from all those different specialties. So I'm not dodging your question, Robin. Okay. <laughs> so here's the way. I am 
going to be uh, taking new patients, but in a bit of a new way. Oh. We are opening a virtual specialty memory loss clinic, and we're very excited about offering a new venue, if you will, for helping individuals and their families that are facing some of these illnesses like Alzheimer's disease or other forms of memory loss. When COVID hit, Mm. all of us (laughs) had to go to virtual work. You may have had to have some doctor's doctor's visits virtually. So what do I mean by that? I basically mean a, a I shouldn't say brand names maybe, but a Zoom call, you know, a, a, a web chat, a FaceTime type call where you have a good video connection and a good audio connection. For a variety of reasons during the pandemic, that really was the best, safest way to continue to provide the medical care. So we did that. Well, consequently, in my clinic, we found that we were able to provide our specialized kind of care that focuses on cognitive symptoms. We were able to do all of the assessments that we needed to do, all of the observations, and then some, Mm. because we were starting to really be able to see people in their home environment and to really understand that crossroads of where geriatrics, I think, really excels in this Uh, area, we look at both the illness someone has and the function they have and and how those two go together to make their whole life uh, work or in some cases not work as well. And and that's really where we want to focus this particular uh, clinic offering. The other aspect of our clinic that will be a, a unique one is that to the point of something like uh, Alzheimer's disease being a disease that doesn't affect just one person. Mm. I've always said my whole career that every time I have a patient on my schedule, I have two patients in the room. The family caregiver, the family of any individual with an illness like Alzheimer's disease or any of those illnesses, the family is affected. It's not an illness where only the person with the symptoms is affected. There's no way around it. And much of the medical care that is traditionally provided is focused squarely on the patient only. And it's very difficult to get any attention paid to the caregiver. My whole career, I've just been very blessed and fortunate to have had social workers available to me. So I've been, I've had teams working with me So myself as a physician, nurse practitioner, and social workers, that's been the core team that has helped thousands of families facing this illness. So we obviously focus on our patient and make sure we get a very strong, clear diagnosis to know what we're facing. And then we follow them along. We help every step of the way, no matter whether it's a a mood symptom that comes up, a problem thinking that causes trouble during the day, or something functionally that's happening. We help every step along the way as the disease changes, and our team, again, that whole core team, helps address that. Clearly, in a virtual clinic, that's going to look a little different, Mm -hmm. but anyone who's interested in this can go to www.mymemoryclinic.org 
And we have it fairly well spelled out and, and sort of described on the website how we intend to offer a really high quality medical experience for our individuals who are concerned about their memory, especially if they end up being diagnosed with one of the Alzheimer's disease disorders, we'll then have a program specially designed for them to follow them from that point of diagnosis all the way forward with our team. Myself, the nurse practitioners are going to take an even bigger role in this clinic because I think they, they are a, a wonderfully trained a group of professionals who have special abilities to add to the care in this area. And then we will have social workers available uh, through a special program as well. So I uh, welcome anyone who thinks this kind of unique, albeit uh, you can be a trailblazer with us. And uh, we're, we're very excited about offering that as an alternative to some of the other excellent providers that we have in the area. So again, it's www.mymemoryclinic.org. Correct. Okay, wonderful. Upholds our statement frequently heard that you need a team. You yes. need a team because as Dr. Laird is pointing out, it's not just Dr. Laird. Although, of course, we aren't going to get anywhere without her. Um, <laughs> but it is, you know, the APRNs and the social workers that understand this world of the various dementias. Complex, right? Very complex. And some of the providers in town do are blessed, as, as I was, to have a team, and that's really wonderful. Um, some don't and, and provide really good care on their own. We feel that will be a supplement to what's available in the community and for anyone who has mobility issues or logistics issues. I would point out, too, for any of our family caregivers uh, who have loved ones who are in assisted living facilities or memory care units, um, our program will be able to be available in that setting as well. Right. And really logistically speaking, we yeah. think that could be a blessing. And so we're hoping that that's another area where, where we will fill a care gap and, and add to what's available. All right. MyMemoryClinic.org. Thank you so much. This has been very educational. Seriously, thank you um, for incredibly good information that our folks, our listeners wouldn't get elsewhere. So. Yes, we appreciate you very much. Dr. Rosemary Laird, again, mymemoryclinic.org. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast, Informed Aging, and tell your family and friends about us. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, informed underscore aging, and then facebook.com slash informed aging. If you need to reach out to us, email informedagingpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was recorded at Digital Broadcasting's podcast studio. That's it for now. We're looking forward to our next visit.